Welcome back to Trademark Property Company's podcast, Leaning In. This is the second part of an episode, and you can find part one on the podcast page. Thank you for tuning in. On today's episode, I'm back with Dr. Peter Linneman, principal of Linneman Associates, to finish our conversation on real estate trends and predictions for the new year. We pick up from last time when Peter joined us in 2021 to discuss how the single and multifamily housing market have evolved and how COVID has impacted all types of real estate. So Peter, when I've asked you the past five, six, seven years about where we are in the cycle, you would always say it's already gone on a long time and who the heck really knows, but I'll answer it anyway. So your confidence level wasn't crazy high. Is your confidence level that we got a new clock and this is early in the cycle is it higher than really high? Okay. Really high. Higher than it was when you answered that question three, four years ago. Oh, yeah. Higher than the last four years. It's kind of where I would have been in late 2009, 10, 2010. And by the way, in 2010, did I think things would run to 2020? No, but I surely would have thought they'd have run to 2017, yeah. 2018. Yeah. So it, it, back in nine ten, you were confident we were early in a new cycle, and you are you are that confident today. Yep. Well, that's absolutely. a that's a. I'm glad I asked that question. That may have been the biggest value add that having me on today brought <laughs> to the table. The urban, suburban, trade areas, secondary markets versus large markets. Those are some things that people are. A lot of people have spent a lot of time thinking about this sort of office trends, lifestyle trends post-COVID, its impact on trade areas, urban, suburban, and secondary markets versus large markets. What are your thoughts on those? Okay, on retail. You're, you're talking more retail? No, no not, not so much. I mean, that's really lifestyle, office, could be retail. Where, where do people want to invest and live, secondary, large? It's, it's, it's not just retail. Okay, so suburban, I've been this rare voice. I'm not the only one, like Joel Kotkin and several others. For the last 10, 15 years, I've always said, don't confuse the fact that the urban's cores are doing much stronger in absorption in apartments, which they have been, there's no doubt, for 10, 12 years. Don't confuse that with there's more young people who want to live in the city than in the suburbs. The suburbs have always attracted more than the city, just not as many more. And so that was a big adjustment. I think that kind of continues. The suburbs will still be the dominant location, including for young renters, not just for every cool young renter you see in the city. There's like two of them out in the suburbs. They're just scattered. So it's harder to find them. But if you go to the Easton Town Center, you go to any of those places, they're there. They live out there. So I think the suburbs still do do quite well. The strong suburbs do better. The strong suburbs are largely defined around, anymore, around an active job node, right? An active office job node and an active retail node. And they feed off of one another. They don't have to be walkable. I mean, walkability is nice. But let's face it, the reason people live in the suburbs 
isn't because they want to walk. I think that's a misnomer when you go, imagine I went to Montana, well, Montana is a bad example. They want to walk, but in a different way. They want to hike, not walk. But the reason I moved to Montana was not so I could walk to work. I know I need a car. I'm there for other reasons. The reason people move to the suburb is not generally walkability. So they can walkability. That doesn't mean they don't like some walkability. But it's not why they're there. The reason I live in the city, and I've lived in the city my whole life, is I don't like the drive. I really don't like the drive. I haven't owned a car for, I don't know, 25 years. And for the 20 years before that, I was driving like grudgingly driving 1,500 miles a year. Now, I'm extreme. <laughs> I want walkability. And by the way, more people like drivability than walkability. Just true. And the older we get, the less attractive walkable becomes, especially if it's walk-ups and so forth. So I don't think that's changed. I, I think the urbans do fine. Uh, the urbans have a big problem of perceived and actual safety. And in many of the urban areas, Philadelphia included, unfortunately, near or record homicides are being set, crime is shot up. It's particularly in some neighborhoods, tragic. Those are livability issues that New York being a poster child, San Francisco being a poster child, Philadelphia being a bit of a poster child, Chicago being a poster child. Why would I want to live down there if there's no livability? And so that's a challenge. I think the governments, in spite of themselves, will rise to the task. Not immediately, but will rise to the task. It may take some time. But I never was anti-suburban. I always have lived in the city, so I always saw the advantages of the city. They'll both continue. They'll both continue with some strength. And any comment on, uh, is there going to be any change? And, and this is the, thinking about investing and population migration to secondary markets, smaller markets versus large metros. You heard it here first. Okay. Okay. Bozeman, Montana is not going to become New York City in the next 20 years. Dang, right? I was thinking it's I not was thinking like everybody's going to say, I'm going to now go to Bozeman. Now that I don't have, I'm going to go to Bozeman or name all the others. I'm not picking on Bozeman. I'm just all the remotes. They are not going to become New York City in 20 years. They're not going to become Chicago in 10 years. They're not going to become Philadelphia or Boston. Or, By the way, will they have growth? Yes. Might this enhance their growth a bit? Yeah. But I just don't think of Denver. Denver's been a wonderful place as a niche place for a long time. Raleigh has been a wonderful niche place for a long time. And yet, 20, 30 years later, they're bigger than they used to be. They grew faster than the old style. But come on, there's still a lot of people in Los Angeles. There's still a lot of people in New York. Still a lot of people in Philadelphia. When I say that, I don't mean the city of, I mean the area. Got right? it. The metro area. Got it. So one thing we didn't talk about uh, regarding inflation, just a, a, a quick question. What is your perspective 
about the sort of age-old observation that real estate hard asset is a really good inflation hedge. Do you believe that? I do believe it with one kind of qualifier. So I did research on my own and then also with my colleague Joe Jerko at Wharton of, I think our research was done in the 80s of the 70s in the United States where we had high inflation. On a sustained basis, we had high inflation. And what we found, and I think others who have subsequently looked at it found, was by and large, it's quite good hedge against inflation. And on top of that, that, but let me say what I mean by hedge against inflation. It was a good hedge against inflation in the sense that rents sort of tracked. Yes, so did your operating costs, but your NOI, therefore, kind of tracked inflation. And on top of that, construction costs, replacement costs, actually not only tracked inflation, went up a little faster than inflation. So you got that as your floor rise. Okay. So it was a good hedge against inflation in that sense. Was it a perfect hedge? No. Think of an office building with a 10-year lease, flat 10-year lease. Over a 20-year period, that's probably a good hedge against inflation. But in the first 10 years, it's not a good hedge against inflation because your rent, I'm the example I'm giving, the rent's fixed and your operating costs are going up. But what happens when the lease expires? Everything adjusts up and you catch up. So it's not perfect. Multifamily works best that way. Hotel. Hotels work yeah. best that way yeah. because they're marking just yeah. more. Much recent. more often. So the longer the lease, they were good hedges against inflation, but it was a lumpier hedge. To put it this way, you could go broke on the operating costs going up while your lease keeps the rent flat before it becomes the inflation hedge, right? Yeah, unless you know? you're in the multifamily or hospitality. And that was the beauty of multifamily and hotels and so forth. So we found it was a quite good hedge against inflation in that sense. And then on top of that, the fact that largely back then people had fixed rates, fixed rate loans, as inflation occurred, you were paying back with funny money. Your debt was depreciating by inflation. So for big inflation with fixed rate debt, you want to be a borrower on a fixed rate. You want to do that. Now, Here's the so I think that will be true again if we get large inflation sustained. What if we have six percent inflation for six months? I don't think so. I mean, yes, but not necessarily so much. It's just not that, that perfect. So if you then look at the research on inflation hedging in the United States since about 1984, the data is since 1984. You don't find real estate as an inflation hedge. Why? Because what you're looking for is the correlation between NOI and inflation. Now, think of the data you're looking at. Inflation went from 1.6% to 1.7%. Do you really think your NOI went up by 10 basis points at the same time? No, there's so many other factors 
impacting NOI. And then inflation went from 1.7 to 1.55. Well, there's so many other factors happening in your NOI. So that if you just think of it as a statistical phenomenon, inflation wasn't high enough for its variability to show. Interestingly, what you do find over a big picture is it more than outstripped inflation. And that's the construction cost. That's the replacement cost phenomenon. And the reason replacement cost goes up faster than general inflation is the labor component because labor is getting real productivity and that's pushing it up faster than commodity, if you will. Commodity kind of goes up in inflation, but commodity plus productivity goes up faster than inflation and that pushes it up. So in a big picture, even with small inflation, like a decade. So if I look decade and come back a decade later, yeah, it's a good hedge against inflation but not in the month-to-month, quarter-to-quarter when it's bouncing around from 2.1 to 1.9. And by the way, when that's not what you were thinking when you asked the question, but that is somebody in the Wall Street Journal or somebody like that is going to publish that in the last 25 years or 30 years, commercial real estate's not been a good hedge on in inflation based on somebody's research but it's based on the research in the way I just described it. And you go, well, of course not. But if you look at it as the last 20 years, the last 10 years, the last 30 years, it is, but not in the data observational sense. So your readers are forewarned about that article coming out. But yeah, it has to be a good hedge against inflation. And shorter leases hedge it better particularly in high inflation, shorter leases hedge it better. Yeah. So in an increasing inflation market, it makes multifamily and hotel ownership, it props them up a little relative to the other sectors. Props them up a bit. What about the quest for yield for institutional investors? And the how does that affect the appetite for real estate and their long-term rotation out of financial instruments, which have been yielding such a low yield for so long. Um, put your thoughts on that and where you see that think, going in the future. I think it's a combination of inflation will drive them. The fear of inflation, whether it turns out or not, the fear of inflation is going to push more money into real assets like real estate, but not just the stock market and others. And super low interest rates already pushed a lot of people into real assets. I have a chance assets. Go back to what we were talking about, fighting chance. It's one thing if you say inflation's 2%, the bond yield is 3.5%, could do worse, could do better, but I'm going to make money. I have a fighting chance to make money. When bond yields got down below inflation, and in many cases around the world, truly negative, I don't have a fighting chance. From the minute I invest, I know I'm going to lose. I know I'm going to lose. That made assets that gave me a fighting chance more attractive than they were before real rates became negative, nominal rates became negative. And I think we're in for, look, I think we're, go back to what I said, I think maybe the 10-year treasury might get to, I don't know, two and a half this year. 
more or less. And inflation could be easily four, four and a half percent. So there's a negative. Still, yeah. So you still don't have much of a fighting chance. If that's the case, I still like real estate. I still like the stock market. At least I have a fighting chance. By the way, I may not win that fight. I may turn out saying I didn't win the fight, but at least I had a chance to win. I don't have a chance to win in certain assets. Got it. Well, I'm done and wish Happy you a new year and, yeah. and stay healthy. Wish you a great 2022. And Thank you. Have here. a great day. You too, pal. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. Be sure and subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss one. To learn more about Trademark Property Company, visit trademarkproperty.com.